Welcome to the Jig Is Up podcast with your hosts, Darcy and Jason. The Jig Is Up is recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, as well as the lands of Treaty 6 Nations. We aim to bring you new perspectives and open up conversations about Métis politics, culture, and current events, as well as stories that affect Indigenous from all over. If you like the show, or you don't, or if you want to send us suggestions for guests or topics to discuss on the show, feel free to email us at metispodcast at gmail.com. And be sure to follow us on all of the social media at Métis Podcast. All right, welcome back to The Jig Is Up. My name is Darcy, and of course, this is Jason. How's it going, buddy? Good. How are you doing today, man? I am doing lovely. It is a great morning. Um, I think it might even be sunny today. So, It's up here, clear sky, sun is shining. It's not even that windy today, which was good. We've had a really wow. windy the last few days. It's yeah. Kind of unusual for us. We've had kind of like, uh, you'll get a nice day and then four days of rain and then a nice day and four days of rain. So yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> so the big news, uh, is the black lives matter, the protests. Um, and I just, I personally, I kind of wanted to just talk about it a little bit because I've been going to the rallies here, um, and doing some video and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I mean, this, this, this is huge. Like this puts the LA riots kind of the shame back in 92, like it, not to shame, but like the size wise, I mean, this is international. This is, I think every, I was reading last night, like every single state in the United States has had protests in, in every major city. Like it, it's pretty massive. So, um, and I mean, I, I fully support the whole black lives matter thing just because I think, you know, minorities like indigenous people, and certainly uh, black people uh, get shafted when it comes to the colonial state. So, I mean, that's, that's where my support is. And, and I don't know, I don't know how you feel about it, but. Well, I, I mean, you have to support the whole construct. I think what this really shows from my perspective anyway, is how big of a problem, especially in the United States, um, segregation still is and, I have a, a, an interesting story. We had a little bit of a vacation um, about six or eight months ago. We went to Vegas for the weekend, the wife and I. And we happened to be in a pub and was chatting up a, a woman of color who was, who was from New Orleans and had yep. moved to California. And so I asked her, because I've been to New Orleans before, how she thought it was growing up there. And she actually said to me, that New Orleans for her was still very segregated. And both my wife and I were quite shocked because this is, you know, it's 2020 and you have a woman of color using the word segregation mm-hmm. in, a, in a sentence to contextualize modern life. And I think that that's such a, an American experience um, on wow. a comparative scale. We have family that live in, in the UK and Ireland and they, they, are very supportive of what's going on in the United States, but for them, it's very baffling because they, it's not that they are racist free at all. Mm. It's, it's just not the undercurrent that it is in the United States. There's not that vocabulary and language that the Americans themselves use in their own context. And I think that's, what's really alarming Mm. in the modern age. We live in 2020 and we, have people who still use these kinds of words to describe, you know, their, their childhood, their upbringing. Right. Absolutely. 
Well, and I think that's maybe, maybe that's why a lot of people think, you know, here in Canada and, and other places like, oh, it does, this stuff doesn't happen here. Um, it does happen here. It happens here every day. But I think because we don't have the amount of people, the, you know, the neighborhood, like the economic diversity of people to the extreme that the United States has, um, I don't know if people just don't recognize it because of that, but, um, but it is interesting because it is viewed by a lot of people like this is an American problem, even though, and, and, you know, you even have people like Rex Murphy coming out and saying, and Doug Ford saying, well, Canada is, doesn't have any systemic racism at all. It never has. And it, like, I, I can't even fathom saying those words and not being a joke, first of all, but to publish articles or to go out into a press conference and say these things is, is baffling to me. But, but that's the reality is a lot of people. And I think the majority of Canadians, um, for example, would say, Oh, this, we don't have this problem in, in Canada. So it, it, well, it's interesting because I think it, I think it's, it maybe is forcing some people to realize that we do have these problems in Canada and they've always been here. Yeah. And I, I think that honestly having conversations with uh, a lot of people online and uh, especially offline and seeing what people are posting it's interesting times we live in i think the the longer they can sustain the pressure the better it is even for canadians i've seen so many people um begin to have the discussion about what it means to have privilege what it means to have you know to have 99 problems but my skin color is not one of them you know um conversations and i think that's meaningful and impactful uh, for even Canadians to have and begin to discuss what it means to have privilege and what is that actually in the Canadian context. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's uh, I mean, for a lot of folks, uh, you know, especially Indigenous folks that, that I know, it's actually, uh, you know, it's kind of a time of like empowerment, but at the same time, it kind of brings up a lot of that stuff. And it, it's, it's stuff that a lot of people deal with and talk about every single day, but it, now you're seeing it on a bigger, bigger scale. And I think, you know, brings up these issues and it forces people to have conversations, which in my opinion is a good thing. The more we talk about this stuff, the more, more people might understand what's really going on out there. Um, Cause I mean, you know, I, it, it, it baffles me because I've even heard people be like, Oh, I've, you know, I've never heard of anything like what happened to this, to George Floyd. I'm like, were you not alive in 92? Like, I, I don't know how you missed the LA riots. I, I don't know how you missed this stuff happening like throughout history. I mean, even Martin Luther King days when they were protesting peacefully, there were still water cannons and tear gas and violence, right? People got killed and just for protesting. So to say, Oh, I didn't know this stuff was happening. I think is, I mean, I don't know what kind of hole you must have your head in to ignore all this stuff, but. It, it is surprising how many people simply think this stuff doesn't happen in real life. Well, again, it, it goes back to that discussion of privilege. Um, yeah. People only have to know what they want to know. Um, you know, I think the challenge is, is people are grappling with that. You know, yeah. people feel overwhelmed by what's going on. And I've heard several people say, well, they just can't emotionally handle uh, all of what's going on. And so they, they don't watch or they don't tune in too much, but that's a privilege. See, that's, you get to have that privilege where, because it's not directly affecting me, I don't have to, you know, 
pay close attention. I don't have to be bombarded. I can keep an emotionally good center by not paying attention. Yeah. But that's because I have, I have the privilege not to, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, for most folks uh, that face, the, you know, racism and racial issues, it's a daily thing. I mean, you, you're, you look indigenous, you go to a store, you're getting followed. You, you're going to get pulled over more by the police. You're, you know, you're going to get stopped and you're going to get ID'd more at, uh, you know, bars and liquor stores or pubs or like, it's just, it's just everything. It's a daily thing. Right. And so it is very much a privilege point to be able to lay be, Oh, I'm just going to ignore that and pretend it doesn't happen and continue to live in my little bubble. Um, so yeah, no, it's, and it's difficult, but what, one of the things that I've been really impressed about uh, with Calgary and the rallies I've been going to is just the magnitude and the size of the amount of people that are attending these rallies. And, and I guess they're protests here too, but um, they're, they're, you know, obviously in solidarity support kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, no, I think, and, and I just, I don't know, I've been impressed with how, how many people have turned out. It's, it actually made me feel better kind of going to the rallies just because you, you're online and you, you see people support it, but you don't really know if people would actually get off their couch away from their laptop and go support something. So to see like, you know, 1500, 2000 people showing up to something is pretty amazing here in Calgary. Well, and I think so. And I think it's nice to see that around the world. We've seen massive outpouring of support yeah. because racism isn't localized. It's not, this isn't no. uh, an American singularity. Absolutely. Um, and so it's, it's a good thing. I think that the longer this can go on, the more pressure it can you know, sustain, the more hope there is for actual real change um, yeah. as time goes on. But I, I think it is going to be a time issue, sadly. We're going to have to change laws. We're going to have to change yeah. perspectives. And that doesn't happen overnight. You know? No. Um, I think that the challenge in Canada is Indigenous people still face an uphill battle and mm -hmm. will even after this, you know, dies down simply for the fact that we don't have the same critical mass. We have, I think, in some ways, a more entrenched, normalized uh, sense of segregation in Canada when it comes to Indigenous people. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have this attitude Indigenous people live outside urban centers, you know, on reserves, on their own land insert air quotations um mm -hmm. and so there is this systemic sense of segregation that indigenous people are still other they're outside you know civilized cities and yeah. civilized spaces you know and and so we're, we have a long way to go yet yeah well and, and i think we have to come to terms with the fact that i i think we have to come to terms with our racism here in Cal in canada um, like when you look back at things like Oka and Gustafson Lake and Wet'suwet'en and things like that, like these things happened on Canadian soil. They were escalated by the authorities. Um, all of these started out as peaceful things. I mean, in Gustafson Lake, it wasn't the indigenous that were planting roadside bombs. It was the RCMP. Uh, when you look at Oka, uh, it was the RCMP that escalated and allowed people to throw rocks at cars with women and children in it and, and throw racial slurs around. Um, you know, you go to the East coast where the fisheries were running over indigenous fishing boats at one point with people in them, just because you know, that you, you were indigenous, you can't fish. Um, and even the fracking protests out on the East coast and stuff. So 
like this stuff happens. And I think, like you said, it's like a normalized thing where we've become as a, as a society, as a country, so used to being racist towards, for example, indigenous people that it's just, that's par for the course now. Like that is the norm, you know? And, uh, and I think it's sad, but, and I think that's why it's a lot of, it's, it's hard for a lot of people to see it. But the reality is, I mean, if you step back and take an objective look at almost any news article about indigenous, it's latently threaded with racism. I mean, even in the articles and, and you're seeing it now too, with like black lives matter where it's, you know, the president calls these people thugs, but if you're white with AR 15s and you show up and you're pushing police and you're screaming in their face, well, those are good people. There's good people there, but this group is thugs. And we do the same thing here where, you know, um, if somebody murders an indigenous person, they're like, well, the murderer was, you know, he was a family person or he, he was a quiet fella or something, you know, like it's this really soft language. And then you get like the mugshot or, or the worst picture whatsoever of the victim. And, you know, unfortunately that is racism. That's, that's kind of sliding that bias again and continuing that, that thread of like just the subtle, you know, way of making sure people understand this guy's the thug and this guy really is the victim here because he's such a good guy. <laughs> and you see that every time, right? So it's, it's, it's more subtle, but it's still there. And I think that's what I, I, I think is the positivity I would put on this is that the size and the scale of what's going on is forcing people into uncomfortable conversations. Let's hope that that actually pays off. I hope so. I really do. And it's interesting too, because you're seeing a lot of people too, like, Oh, why do they have to riot and stuff? And, and for first, let's pretend for a second that all of the rioters are actual black lives matter protesters and not, you know, other people taking advantage of the situation to get some Gucci bags or something like, or, you know, even police instigators, let's pretend it is actual real protesters. They protested peacefully and you, you mocked and ridiculed them like Colin Kaepernick and, you know, all the basketball players that wore, I can't breathe shirts. And like, these are peaceful protests that were vilified and shunned and, and these people were made to be like monsters because they were trying to protest during the national anthem, you know, like it was, that's disgusting. Then what do you expect them to do? What's the next level? Like you're not going to listen to them when they peacefully protest. Well, then the only way to listen to people is to get anybody to listen is to go with the violence. And so to me, it's like, I don't adhere, like I don't promote violence, but I understand if you're not getting heard, You've got to do something to get hurt. You've got to do something to get change made. We, you know, in 92 is the first time we really saw this videotaped, this police systemic racism within police departments. But since then, what has really changed? And I, honestly, not much. Not much has changed. I mean, you still have RCMP that are taking down, you know, 60-year-old Indigenous elders and be, just because. <laughs> You still have all of that stuff going on in the States on a daily basis. I mean, you go to YouTube at any given moment and type in police violate rights and you're going to get a thousands and thousands of videos of police doing exactly that. You know, I watched one yesterday. They're beating up some 
14-year-old black kid because he jaywalked. And they, they needed to not only arrest him, but like violently arrest him. It's like for jaywalking. <laughs> like, like these aren't major crimes here, you know? And so it's things like that that I think, you know, it's been going on and no change has happened. Change needs to happen. And I think when people get frustrated and people get to the point where nothing and nobody is listening, well, you got to do something to get people to listen. So I don't know. I, I can understand the, the escalation to violence as much as I don't want to see that. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. I have a little bit different perspective on that only because I, I love history and I love to find out how did we get to here? And the truth for me is if you look at the history of colonial structures in Europe, the only thing that the European mindset and power structure has ever responded to is violence. True. Um, it doesn't matter whether it was governmental change in England. Yeah. And you can talk about the religious reformations. Uh, you can talk about, you know, that's how they have done everything was through violent means. You know, you look at the England's relationship with Wales, Scotland, Ireland, you know, yeah. this is one of violence and oppression and suppression. So absolutely the real truth of the matter is while the power structure always, you know, shuns and bemoans and whines about the violent, it is by definition oppressive to those who aren't violent. Yeah. The only way within the colonial power structure to be heard is through violence. Well, and, and you have great examples on this soil, even in North America of that, where the Civil Rights Act was only passed because there was like 11 days of violent protests. Um, and, you know, like, you know, women's rights to votes was through riots. Um, you know, lots of stuff like that. I know there was somebody listed out like 10 or 15 examples of where it had to go to violence before any change was made. So you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that is what they respond to. And it, it's um, historic. Look at, look at uh, Pontiac. You know, the English yeah. only, you know, sat down and decided to actually have a conversation was because, because they were losing to, the, to Pontiac. They were violently taking over forts. Yeah. Then they sat down and said, let's make one pump. Yep. Absolutely. And when you look at it that way, it's like, well, how can you not go to violence when that's the only language that the oppressor and the colonial structure understands? Mm. I mean, how many people have worked for peaceful solutions over the last 50 years in both Canada and the United States to, to fix these racial issues for indigenous, for uh, people of color in general? And we're still at a point where police, I know here in Calgary, police will stop and card and question, you know, three people of color, teenagers that are hanging out, as opposed to the three white teenagers hanging out over there. You're seeing news reporters getting arrested, the black crew is getting arrested, but the white crew is left to report. Like, these things are happening, they've been happening, and there's been... I'm going to guess and say thousands of people that have worked for peaceful solutions to change laws, to, to go through the process, to put in bills, but nobody's listening. Nobody's doing anything. And so violence is their only language. Mm -hmm. And, and especially, especially corporate violence, like violence against the, these massive corporations, especially, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so for me personally, when people say, 
that they're not going to support the protest and they're they're because of the violence and they lose credibility when they become violent that's the language of the oppressor no oppressor yeah. wants to be violently overthrown yeah and so you suppress violence to maintain the status quo that is the history of european colonialism yes well so and, and it goes back, back to that privilege right mm-hmm. and that's what it's about the language of privilege saying i don't support people who are violent means yeah. i don't support anybody who actively seeks to violently overthrow my position <laughs> Well, and it's funny because we're all, you know, a lot of people, a lot of these same people would say, you know, yeah, let's go to Iraq and go fight a war and stuff. So they're okay with violence on other people. Just don't bring the violence here against the systems that they're comfortable with. Right. But as long as we'll go to Iraq, that's right. So we'll go to Iraq and we'll violently overthrow their oppressive government. Yes. You know, we did it in Afghanistan, you know? Yeah. And, you know, we, we, I mean, even this year earlier, we almost were to, you know, the Americans were to war with the Iranians. That's right. They're seen as an oppressive regime. Yeah. So we have no problems liberating the oppressed with violence. We just don't like to look in the mirror and believe we live in a society where we too oppress minorities and segregated parts of our own societies. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting thing, and I mean, I've I'm going to another rally on Saturday, which um, I suspect is going to be a fairly large rally because it's a weekend. It's uh, a little later in the day, um, so we'll see. I mean, it's 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 just interesting, but it is also nice to see a lot of the support coming through. Like I said, the the size, sheer size of the rallies here in Calgary. Um, I think Edmonton's had a, had some as well. Um, but it's, it is, it is kind of amazing to see how many people are coming out to sport. Like you said, worldwide. I mean, I was seeing like in Paris, there was like 10,000 people marching and stuff like that. So like, this is something that hits to the core, I think of, of almost everybody. Um, and whether you want to side on the side of the oppressor, that's your choice. But, um, but I do think I, I, well, I do hope that we actually see some change starting to happen with this. Um, how much hope? I don't know. Because <laughs> the cynic in me still goes, yeah, but will it change? I don't know. I think for me, the positive takeaways, like I said, um, I see a lot more people having the conversation about privilege, what it means to be, you know, what, what does it mean to have 99 problems and yeah. your skin color is not one conversations. Yeah. Um, I think that's good. Um, uh, am I hopeful that that's going to lead to wide sweeping, long lasting change? Probably not. <laughs> um, yeah. Is it a start to a conversation that hopefully we can sustain to bring about change? Yes, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I hope that it is a sustainable change. I hope we see it filter out through laws. But at the same time, you have to, like, I, I there's a part of me that doesn't see this really changing much because you do have leaders like Donald Trump. You have leaders like Jason Kenney who are absolutely blind to this. They don't care about it. They're not willing to change. I mean, and and that's just the reality. And there's governments all over the world that are like that, where they're comfortable because they have all the power and all the money. Why would they change that? And uh, so I, I hope that it does, but you know, 
Well, I think, and that's the hard part in the Canadian context, sadly, the minorities, uh, you know, even indigenous people are a minority. And so Jason Kenny represents for us in Alberta, the majority, and he's comfortable in that. And so it's going to be very difficult for minorities of any, any color to really get a voice heard in this province. And especially I think in, in all of Western Canada. Yes. For sure, simply because there's not the majority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so moving on from that, I, there was a couple of things that I saw online that were specifically Métis. Uh, so we're going to bring it back to the Métis here. And um, one of the things we talked about this before with COVID and the Métis Nation of Alberta's association getting seven and a half million dollars, and according. according Oh, I think my audio is going down. Um, according to the federal government, that money was supposed to be for all Métis in Alberta. However, um, that money did not filter out to those northern communities that decided recently to break away from the MNA. And I think, uh, you know, some people are like, well, they're not part of the Métis Nation, so they, they don't get any money. But the reality was, is, uh, you know, a few months ago or maybe a year ago, they were part of the Métis Nation. And just because they broke away doesn't mean that they stopped being Métis the minute they sent their membership cards back. But that's the attitude that a, the MNA has, and that's the attitude of a lot of, a lot of people as well. They're not part of the Métis Nation. So, and it, again, we can go back and we can make bigger questions on this, like what is a nation then if somebody decides to move to a different geographic location they're suddenly not part of the nation, which is proven because you have Red River Métis all over the country that aren't able to join any groups because they don't live in a province with a group. Um, And so there's those questions, but specifically cutting those organizations out in the North out of COVID funding, I think was, I mean, honestly, that's, that's gotta be one of the lowest acts of low when Métis people are struggling to begin with in those communities. I mean, we, we were up there. We've seen how some of the people are living up there. They desperately need help. And here's another example where the Métis Nation of Alberta says, nah, screw you. We're going to keep all the money here and just disperse it to who we want. Um, so I don't know. Like, I don't know if you got a chance to read that article or what your thoughts were. but Well, again, I mean, we, you start off talking about people in, in power, positions of power and positions of authority and what do they do with that? You know, are they there to help the people? Are we, you know, and, and this is a great example. If you look at the privilege that the MNA has, being a government funded organization that's there to supposed to work at behest of the Métis people. And yet look what really happens um, mm. in this is they use their position of power yeah. to do nothing more than further their own political agenda. In, in trying to make this homogenized uh, Métis identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're a breakaway group, if you're unsatisfied with a single Métis party system in the MNA structure under the Societies Act, well, then I guess you're just out in the cold and you're not really Métis and, you know, all these other conversations come into play. But it's, yeah. really, this is a privileged power structure that uh, the MNA enjoys because of the government. And now they use yeah. it to basically beat everyone into submission through finances. Well, and I think it's a great example of what we've talked about 
at least one time on all of our shows is how the government is more than happy to work with these types of organizations because it reduces their fiduciary responsibility. So they give them seven and a half million knowing that the Métis Nation's only going to give that first to their members, but even there, you're probably even going to be more selective and more selective. And so for the government, they don't have to give 10 million because they only, because they figured whatever math they figured out, seven and a half was good. But if you include like the other, you know, two thirds of Métis in Alberta that aren't part of the club, well then suddenly you might have to give 10, $15 million to make these, these levels equivalent, right? And so it's a, it's a great example of the government more than happy to send them a buttload of cash, making sure that their fiduciary responsibility is maintained at a low rate. But they can say they consulted and they worked with the Indigenous and this is what it is. And so the government's kind of off the hook because they, did all, they checked all their checkboxes and knowing full well that that money was not going to go to anybody except who the Métis Nation of Alberta's organization and management team want that money to go to. Um, so it's a great deal for the Canadian government. And again, we, we may have talked about this before too, but you, these people that are in these organizations that are leading them are, are just say yes. They say yes to what the government wants. And I think this is a, just a really good example. Like it's a very tangible example of the government purposely reducing its fiduciary responsibility, in my opinion. So, <clears throat> well, absolutely. I mean, in Alberta, we have you know, according to the, those same government stats, um, so the same people providing the funding who are actually yeah. tallying, you know, tallying the number of Métis people in Alberta. You know, we have over a hundred thousand people who self-identify as Métis, which is one of the first criteria under Pali. Yeah. Um, whether that that is valid or not, you know, needs to be followed up on the other two points, but. The reality is there is a lot more owed to the Métis people in Alberta than the MNA's membership. Yes. And, and then you have organizations inside of their communities inside of that organization who, because of mismanagement and because of the way that it, that organization has been run, felt better off on their own. Yeah. But somehow now that there's government funding, that funding, instead of being used as a way to help the people, the individual, it's being used as a way to punish the community. Yes. And that, that should be quite horrifying to Métis people. Yeah, because what, what is this signal to communities that were maybe thinking, you know, maybe we should break away from the MNA and regain more control over our community and what we do in our, our own lives? Maybe that maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we should join this other organization that has started up because of the breakaway of these communities. It kind of says to them, "Well, if you break away, you you'll you like you said, you will be punished because you won't get any more money anymore, even though the money is supposed to be for all Métis. So, like it's it's a really easy way for the MNA to say to get that message very clear that you break away. And, you know, you're, you're out, you're out of the family now, you don't get any money. But if you stay, oh, look, we, we, we have seven and a half million dollars this time. You know, like it, it is very much a punishment 
for those who have decided to take control of their own lives and their own destiny and actually follow the principles of UNDRIP, which is that Métis and as indigenous people can choose who we want to represent us. But here in Alberta, there's only one option or there was. And it's made very clear by both the federal government and the MA that if you choose option B, well, you're cut out of the, the pie completely and ignored because the federal government didn't send any money to uh, those northern communities on the scale that it did to the MA. I mean, they applied for some community grants through CERB, just like a bunch of other indigenous communities did. And I think they got, they, I think there was five or six of them, they got $100,000 or something. Um, but when you think about like they're trying to actually serve their community, that's just not a lot of money. I mean, a hundred thousand dollars when you're talking about trying to help people pay for rent or, or, you know, get through a tough time cause they got laid off. It just doesn't go very far, you know? So, so it, it very much is a, a, a signal from both the federal government and the MA that membership has its privileges and let's keep that in mind, you know? So. No, I think that's exactly right. That that the government's using the MA to punish, maintain, and absolutely right, reduce their <laughs> responsibility to indigenous individuals. Yeah. And it's 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 funny because I think this is a good little segue into a a, a, a post that I saw from Will Gooden. Um, and he's talking about the destruction of the Metis Nation by Portra and McCallum and how this is just the end of things. They've allowed everybody to join the Métis Nation now. They recognize anybody and everybody, and you just anybody can get membership. And so now the world is coming to an end for the Métis Nation. Um, and I think it's hilarious considering the, how the Métis Nation in Alberta continues to treat its like Métis people in Alberta with this isolating and this punishment and this. If you're not in the in crowd, then screw you and all these kinds of things. And yet he's coming out saying, no, no, they're letting anybody in and they're ruining the nation. <laughs> but these are all tactics and these, the way they run the Métis Nation of Alberta is how they all run their organizations because they're all part of that same cartel. So Will's just mad that they're not doing what you know, the MNC dictates and lays down as law. That's what he's upset about, but they're still operating just like the cartel organizations that are still in the good books, like the MMF and stuff like that. So I think it's hilarious that he's signaling the end, the, the, the destruction of the Métis Nation by these organizations that are then discriminating against their own, just like the Métis Nation always does. Well, and I think it's a great press game. I think Will's very good at continuing the hype train for um, this problem that they perceive with the MNO, um, that somehow because Alberta and Saskatchewan support the MNO is a more inclusive idea of who's Métis, that suddenly all the bylaws in Alberta have changed. And, yes. uh, you know, suddenly Darcy and I, our applications will get approved. Right. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and we'll be included in the exclusive <laughs> money club. Uh, you know? Yeah. That that's the language that's being thrown around by the MNC and its councils and, and Will Gooden is that this is what's actually happening. 
you know, that suddenly the MNA's membership is going to balloon up to the whole 100,000 people who claim Métis identity in Alberta. Yeah. But yet, what is the real truth? Well, the truth is there's no change in their bylaws for membership. There's no change in the criteria for who can be members. So Alberta uh, specifically hasn't changed anything in regards to who is considered to be Métis by their standards. So Will's statement is, again, highly inflammatory, completely inaccurate, and is nothing more than an alarmist conversation. They're trying to perpetuate to continue to do what they do on a grander scale. So just like we talked about Alberta and our northern communities, the uh, MMF and the MNC are trying to do the exact same thing to the Métis Nation of Ontario. Well, and when you look at what the MNC is doing, like they're embracing this new group up north and and they're really buddying up with them because uh, because of the fight that's going on with the MNA right now. So the new group is support of, is has supportive uh, platitudes from the MNC, but Alberta, the, you know, the Métis Nation of Alberta does not. And so it's like the Métis, and I think we've talked about this many times, but the Métis Nation's mad at the Northern group for doing exactly what they're doing to the MNC. And the MNC is mad at Alberta for doing it, but happy that these guys are doing it. So the whole thing is just a massive cluster. And really what it boils down to is, is uh, people trying to hold on to that power structure. So the MNC wants to be the, the dictator at the top and everything, everybody just follows orders. You're all just soldiers from there. But these provincial organizations are saying, well, no, if we're negotiating with the federal government on our own, if we're negotiating with provincial governments on our own, if, you know, we're, we're negotiating with our own communities on our own, well, then what does the MNC offer? Why, why, why should we follow their rules? And so it's, it's a very interesting and, and weird thing that, that, you know, the MNC and Will Gooden and the MMF are, are so unhappy. But when it boils down to it, it's just re, the reality is it's because it, it shakes their potential power structure within the MNC because well, let's face it everybody everybody knows that like Will Gooden and you know Chartrand and these guys are kind of on the fast track to take over the MNC when you know as Chartier leaves and and so they're they're wanting that power they want that that esteem and suddenly if these provincial groups go well we can kind of do this on our own well now what is now what happens now where's that power oh my god god forbid I won't be able to make $500,000 a year working for two different organizations anymore, <laughs> you know? So, and, well, and I, well, go well, ahead. The big reality, the, the truth is, is what they're afraid of is the very thing they perpetuate. <laughs> and that is a further reduction in the government's fiduciary responsibility. Yes. If these communities continue to break off and leave and, yeah. You know, the, the MNC becomes segregated down to provincial levels. Well, then the government can reduce its responsibility not to a federal organization, but to little provincial organizations. Yeah. And so the, the very game they're playing is starting to turn the corner and might bite them in the ass. And they're not so happy about it anymore. Exactly. Exactly. And it's just going to be constant fighting now. Um, and anytime anybody does or says anything that the other groups don't, the other one doesn't like, like, it's just going to be constant infighting, but they, they re they are, like you said, reaping what they sowed. Um, I mean, I think back in 1990, you probably could have predicted this, this implosion 
just based on the fact that when it when it comes to a, a pile of federal funding funding and all the money that's involved it's eventually going to implode because people are going to get greedy people are going to get jealous people are going to get unhappy with the structure um you know when you have a president for almost 30 years like and nothing changes like these are the things that just cause these groups to implode on top of the fact that they're all registered nonprofit corporations and societies and anybody who's been involved with a society knows you can't keep the board happy most societies will operate for a length of time and then fold because different people come onto the board and they want to go a completely different direction and then you have pushback and arguing and fighting and then they just fold um and that's what happens to a lot of these nonprofit societies is they just it's not built to be a functional well-oiled machine it's built to it's built to be the people that are on the board have the power and as soon as they lose power well then things start to fall apart and i think you're seeing that now um and I, especially cuz they're all registered nonprofit societies so none of them are governing bodies basically. And so you don't have checks and balances. You don't have transparency and it just starts to fall apart, you know? Well, and let's be honest, the only reason any of these organizations are still around is because they have had continuous leadership by the same individuals for the last 20 and 30 years. Yes. And now that most of these organizations have been finally forced into some kind of term limitations, we're seeing now that same thing, the beginning of the end of these organizations, because there's going to be power shifts. People want new bylaws. They want new direction. And yeah. we're seeing this infighting and this divisiveness happen because most of the current leadership is on its last or second last term. Yeah. So the truth is these organizations don't have another decade left in them. Mm -mm. And, and so it's a great opportunity for Métis people to begin to have a conversation is, what does an actual Métis government look like? What is a multi-party, multi-platform actual, you know, if we want to be, you know, going down that road, democratic Métis government look like? Yeah. And I think it's time to move away from these societies because look at them. They're all crumbling, infighting and collapsing. You know, this is a good time to have this conversation so we can actually move towards something that is, like you said, transparent, open and engaging for the average Métis citizen. Well, exactly. I mean, you, these organizations, you know, I, I, you get a lot of the people, a lot of people argue that, um, like the nationalists, they believe that if you allow anybody who doesn't meet these very strict guidelines on being Métis, you're going to destroy the culture. You're going to water down the culture. You're going to whatever. You're going to lose the true meaning of being Métis, which I, I don't understand that thought process, but but that's what they believe. But when you look at these organizations, these organizations now are not cultural organizations. They're political. They're lobby groups at, at best. And they don't even do a very effective job at lobbying unless it's for not only just their members, but their very selective group of privileged members that are in the in crowd. So it's kind of like, you know, <laughs> I always think of high school where you had like, the jocks and the emo kids and the, you know, the stoners. And I, I kind of feel like that's what these organizations are where, yeah, you can have a lot of members. So Cal, uh, Alberta claims to have 40,000 members, 
but out of that only like 3000 vote. <laughs> so is that like, so that's like the, you know, one little group. And then out of that group, there's even the, the favored, you know, groups and locals and, and stuff like that from the MA. So it's like, it's just this very clicky, very group oriented privileged thing. So they're not inclusive to their own Métis. They've kicked out Métis um, for disagreeing with them. They've, um, you know, isolated Métis. There's, I've met a lot of Métis who at one point were Métis Nation of Alberta members, probably still are on their roster, but they want nothing to do with them. And, and, and vice versa, the organization wants nothing to do with them. And it ranges from age from 20 to 70 that I've met. And so you just have these organizations that don't, they're not really accountable to anybody. They're not, they're not cultural. They're not preserving the culture. I mean, they say they are and they throw a few bucks at a, at a museum or at this or that. But the truth is, is like the Métis Nation of Alberta spends more on, on stationary, I think, than they do on cultural events. So, so to say that, you know, these other Métis are the ones destroying Métis culture. I don't know, when the, when the Métis Nation of Alberta puts a post out saying, hey, anybody know how to build a Red River cart? What kind of org- Métis organization is it when they don't even know the resources or the people that, can, are, that are upholding the culture? And so, like, the, they're just not cultural organizations. So at this point... Um, even if they were letting in everybody, everybody that claimed to be Métis, even if they were letting them in, what's the difference? How's that going to change these Métis organizations? Are, are they, are they going to change their cultural events? Are they going to stop jigging? Are they going to stop playing the fiddle? It just isn't true. So I, I don't know. Like, I think it's, I think it is a time of reckoning for them as well. And maybe that's what 2020 is supposed to be is a year of complete and utter change. Who knows? <laughs> well, that would be nice. I mean, then we could talk about something else. <clears throat> but uh, until that time, I think the reality is it's, that's what has to happen. It should be a time of reckoning. We have millions and millions of dollars tied up in funding for programs yeah. and services that never make it uh, to, yeah. to the people. Um, yeah. And Lord help you if you actually decide to leave this one horse pony train of a singular representative organization, yeah. then you're really out in the cold. Your identity is continually questioned. Your validity as a Métis Indigenous person is always under scrutiny. Um, yeah. it, it is a form uh, of racism almost in what, is, what these organizations are perpetuating in the nullification of anyone who's not a member. Absolutely. And, and, and I, th- I think the thing is, is like, for me, I, the, the line between, you know, a society and an actual government is very clear for me. So if you want to be a society and you want to have your members and you want to take care of those members, do that, but just be honest about what you are. Don't claim to be a government, but then exclude people. I mean, you know, people in Alberta seem to feel that the Ottawa excludes Alberta. Well, how do, if, if you feel that way about Ottawa and the exclusion of like even the Western Canada, because typically the power structure has all been in Ottawa and we've, we kind of get the scraps that are left over because we don't have the population and density. So if you feel that way in Western Canada, imagine 
how it must feel for those Métis that are that have been outed and 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 pushed out of or pushed to the side by these organizations. It's the same exact thing. They've decided, well, these people don't deserve our help. But these people do because these people never post negative things on social media or these people never question our authority. Well, these people do, so we're not going to help them. Um, so, I, like, I, it's just pretty sad. I mean, for me, the line is very clear on these societies, so I understand that. But for a lot of people, it isn't. A lot of people do believe that these organizations are governments or they are there to help Métis. But let's look at the COVID help. I mean, I haven't found a single post in a, in a, any Métis forum that I'm in or group on Facebook or on social media where there's been multiple people saying, yep, no, I, I got help with my rent. Uh, I, I got four months worth of rent through the Métis Nation of Alberta or, you know, the Métis Nation of Alberta decided to drop all the rent on their, their properties and then, boy, it sure helped out. Like, what I'm seeing is people saying, oh, I got some grocery cards for like Safeway. Um, you know, I got a couple of $75 grocery cards or I got a couple of gas cards or like it's, it's this weird stuff. And I don't think that's really, I mean, it helps, but it's, it's not the help that people needed through this COVID thing. And I, like, I'm just not seeing where this seven and a half million went. Um, people are asking, hey, who got help? Who got this money? Like who's getting it? Because I didn't, I applied, I phoned, I called, I emailed, I didn't even get a response. That's what I'm seeing. And a lot of people are like, well, I got a couple of gas cards. Oh, I got a couple of these cards. Maybe I got my rent reduced. What it, but it, it's not the overwhelming help that I think Métis people were expecting from this organization. And again, I go back to the fact that these leaders kind of hold up in their own house. And to this day, they've kind of run silent on anything to do with COVID. Um, I think Potra put out a couple of videos on YouTube that were all of, I think in total might be 20 minutes long talking about their, their plan for COVID, but they're not there. They're not there for the people. So what are these organizations for? Government funding, government approval, <laughs> government, uh, you know, consultation. That's what they're there for. Well, I, I think it doesn't take a genius, and I'm no genius by any stretch, but it doesn't take much if you break out a calculator. It's take $7.5 million, divide it by 40000 Yeah. That, that really should have been, if this is a transparent organization that does nothing more than serve its membership, yep. and that's its membership role, and this money was supposed to go to help people in COVID, uh, you know, make it through these trying times, to say the least. Yeah. The very minimum you should have saw in your pocket was do the math, you know, yeah. seven and a half dollars divided by your membership equals what the support should have been. Yeah. So even if you took out some administration funds to make sure that that money got to where it needed to be, I'd like to know anybody who saw any near where near that kind of money. Well, and, and even, you know, even accounting for the fact that not all 40,000 members are going to need help. Some people are financially very well, you know, maybe not super rich, but they're comfortable. And so maybe they didn't need the help. So you narrow that down. You say, even if 50% of the people needed help, that's still 20,000 people, seven and a half million by 20. So, and that's being very optimistic, I think. But, and that's the thing is like, you just didn't see where this money went. Like 
The only thing I, I'm pretty sure they, they did, but I don't even know if we got confirmation that the money actually made it to the locals was um, their Métis regions each got 200 grand to help their communities. So that's 1.2 million for all of Alberta. So if you take the seven and a half million minus 1.2, you're left with a large chunk of money still that we have no idea where that money is or where it went, if it went anywhere. So again, we, you know, and, and I, you've said this more, probably more than I have, but if they didn't do things like this, we wouldn't have a show to talk. We would have no material. We would be stuck having, having to actually talk about culture or talk about building a Red River cart. Hell, we might have to get you out building one if, if we had no show. But, uh, but the truth is, is because they're so unaccountable, there's such a lack of transparency. It, the money just goes into a void and it's gone. Well, you're only left to speculate as to what's going on. And it, it makes our show happen. But at the same time, if you're a member and you're relying on services, like you might, it's probably easier and better just to go to the federal government and apply or the provincial government rather than even try to go through the maintenance of Alberta in this example. Well, I think it's like everything. If we applied the same criteria we're talking about to any other organization, we'd probably be riding in the streets. You know, yes. if your if your local school board got seven and a half million dollars in funding to help your child make it through COVID, to, to pay for their computer, their classes, their internet time, you know, the school yeah. supplies they needed, and all you had to do was apply, and your kid could get this funding. But when you went to apply, your school board had no idea where the money was. Yeah. Oh, I think you just got muted. Oh, there we go. The reality is for me, um, you'd be freaking out. Yes. You'd be down beating that school door down, say, Where is my kids' money? Yep. What do we hear from the Mason people when we have seven and a half million dollars in funding to help them through COVID? We have nothing. We have no organization. Like you said, like where, where did it go? It's this void. Yeah. Um, how long are people going to continue to support a black hole of money grubbers? I don't know. Uh, how long are people going to support an organization that actively discriminates against other Métis people? I yes. Well, and, and how, how long are we going to go with, with no answers on anything? Uh, they won't. Um, you know, there was a fellow here in Alberta that was uh, really trying to put forward like a Métis news kind of thing. And he would call to try to get comments, to try to get their input on articles he was writing. And you, you wouldn't hear back. Uh, I have called, I have left messages because I want to get answers on what they're doing. And I don't expect them to call me back because of the show we do. But at the same time, there, there never will be a callback um, unless you're in the in crowd and you're going to do nothing but, but promote them and propagate the lies they tell everybody. Well, then we will do an interview with you or unless you're a major news organization and I can go on and lie on national TV, then we'll do an interview. But like, so, so there's just no accountability. I mean, here we have, the that um, judicial board that still hasn't been put in place and it's almost it's been two years i think since they voted to re reboot that 
that's not how a government runs. You you don't run. I mean, it kind of is, but at the same, like governments don't just abandon the the legal system and go. We're just not going to have courts anymore. And if you guys want courts, well, whatever. We're just not going to do it anymore. That's what the Métis Nation has effectively done. So, you know, they, they, that, and then again, that's that societal privilege where they can go, but we're a society. So we, we do these. Th- these are the rules we have to follow. But when it's convenient, we're a government, and these are the rules we follow. So it, it, it sucks because I think the only people that really do get hurt is, the, is Métis people. And this COVID thing, I think, should have been a, a huge eye-opener as far as where Bunny doesn't go. And uh, as well as multiple, multiple things before that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see how their budgets are going to come out this year. Because I can almost guarantee they're going to still have, you know, $4,000 a day in travel and, and accommodations and stuff like that. But yet for like three months, nobody could travel anywhere. You know, so it's, it's pretty sad that it's been allowed to continue this long. And it will unfortunately be allowed to continue even further because the federal government just continues to funnel money into there like a, some sort of money laundering scheme. <laughs> yeah. I, I think what we're, what we're waiting for in the Métis societies, you know, in our Métis communities, you know, what we're really looking for is the same similar response to what we're seeing south of the border. We need Métis people to become unified in opposition to these organizations. Yeah. It's not enough to, to bitch and moan about it. You and I have tried on several occasions to spearhead or push this down the road and there's not, there's just not the, the support there for it. Yeah. And that's unfortunate because that's really where we're at now, that there are more Métis people outside these organizations than in. Yeah. We just need to find that unifying factor. What is it that's gonna bring those Métis people together the challenge, the status quo. Well, and I think, you know, I've thought a lot about that. Like, you know, is it just people don't care? Is it people aren't interested? And I think what the reality is, is these cartel organizations have done a great job of minimizing the impact on the lives of daily lives of Métis people to the point where most Métis that are, that have memberships in these organizations don't really even think about them on a daily basis because it doesn't impact their life at all. You know, like, you know, you, you get up, you go to work, you, you come home, you feed your family, you take care of your dogs or cats. You, you on the weekends, you're out doing things with the kids or whatever it is that you're doing. The Métis nation of Alberta or whatever province you're in doesn't really play a huge role in that. And so because of that, I think it's really easy to just be like, well, why would I go protest or why would I waste my time on a Saturday to go stand outside the main office in Edmonton and with picket signs or, or take action because it has such little impact on me anyway. What does it matter? And so I, I don't think it's people's laziness or, or, or lack of interest. I think it's just that these organizations have done such a good job of becoming completely irrelevant in most Métis people's lives. Like you said, the vast majority of Métis are outside of the organizations. That means they have zero impact on those Métis. So they've, they've done a good job of stepping back and becoming almost living in the shadows where people really don't pay much attention to them. Um, and it's unfortunate because the people that, 
there are people that do still want and need some help or need some of the programs and services they offer and they're not getting them because they've done such a good job of, of hiding in the shadows. Well, and that, and that brings it. Yeah. And I think that's a very interesting point because essentially the very thing um, people like Will Gooden are arguing is the end of the cultural identity of, uh, you know, what they would say is Red River specific community, yeah. you know, is, is because you can open up the membership, you're going to have all these people in flood and it'll be the end and the, the delusion of what it means to really be Métis. But the truth is just like you said, what does it really mean on a day in day out basis? How much does your Métis identity color impact or move you through the day? Yeah. And, and the truth is we've seen the very thing that the people like Will Gooden are coming out and claiming is going to happen is already happening. Yes. There is no Métis culture. If we're not talking about, you know, Batoche days or when people, you know, gather in Manitoba around Louis Riel's grave, the reality is what does it mean to be Métis when you get up in the morning? What does it mean to be Métis when you go to work? When yeah. you feed your kid, when you play with your dogs, uh, how much does your Métis identity color those things? And let's be honest, even for the 40,000 strong membership of the MNA, you're down to maybe the 3,000 that vote. Yeah. That they are impactful. If we had any numbers to go by, and that's a scary thing. You know, what's going to bring about the end of the Métis people is a loss of our culture. Yeah. Well, and I wonder now with that group that split off in Northern Alberta, I have to wonder, um, like I, I know there's not 40,000 people in, in Northern Alberta in these communities, but you know, if I think it was six communities that have broken off now, um, let's say in those six communities, there's five to 10,000 people or even just 5,000 people. I'm, I'm curious to see in the next, uh, you know, MNA election, how that impacts the voter turnout. Because I think a lot of those communities, because they are Métis communities, um, and you look at like Fort Mackay, their whole life is about being Métis. It's, you know, the housing is owned by Fort Mackay Métis Nation, and it's the, the land is owned by Fort Mackay Métis Nation. So you wake up in the morning, you're on your own land. You're in Métis housing. You're, you know, they, I think we recently announced that everything is rent-free now and stuff like that. So it's like, they're living 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Métis, because they're in Métis communities. But when you get into places like Calgary, Edmonton, where these aren't Métis-focused communities, these are communities of, you know, Calgary's got over 1.2 million people. And out of that, there's what, I think, what was it in Calgary, like 30,000 Métis or something? So it's, it gets harder to have that really close-knit community and so because of that, a lot of people just start to spread out and then it becomes less impactful. And those are the people that aren't voting. You didn't get 2,500 votes out of Calgary. So I think it's those Northern communities. It's, it's the smaller communities that are really turning out to vote because they're, they're living Métis lives. I mean, when we went to Conklin, there's no doubt in my mind that those people are living Métis lives. They're, I mean, they're forced to live out in the bush for one thing, but it's just that because they have a, a smaller, closer-knit community, it's a very, you know, you, you get the, the Métis sense. You get the Métis feeling when you walk in there. You come into Calgary, other than Métis Trail, there's really, like, what is there about Calgary that is like, oh, overwhelmingly Métis? Nothing. And so it, it gets harder and harder in these bigger centers, which is why 
the people, the votes are not coming from the larger centers. So I'm curious to see, I guess, my long-winded spiel here about how that will impact the voting turnout um, in the next election, just because I don't, I think when you cut out those Northern communities, you cut out probably at least a thousand votes, maybe 500 votes, a thousand votes. So it'll be, it'll be interesting is all I'm saying. Well, it goes to show though, that where is Métis culture? Where, you know, in 2020, where's Métis identity? Um, where's the push on, you know, being minorities in what is essentially our own lands? What is that doing mm-hmm. for us? Is it forcing us to become a unified force? I mean, let's be honest. We um, can go to Fort Edmonton and go to Celtic days and you'll see more people uh, putting on kilts, throwing the caber than you would see at any Métis event. Absolutely. Um, and that's very sad. Uh, it's very yeah. sad. There's not in our urban centers where you have 10, 15, 30,000 Métis people. We have nothing culturally going on to let even yeah. the, the wider world at large know that Métis people are still here and Métis people yeah. still matter. Yeah. And again, it goes back to, you know, these organizations get millions, tens of millions of dollars from the government, but it's for programs and services. It has very little to do with culture. Um, you know, most of the time when you see a cultural event, it's supported by the Gabriel Dumont Institute, but it oftentimes is not supported by the Métis Nation of Alberta. Um, I went out to Rocky at an event a few years ago and the Métis Nation of Alberta, the logo wasn't on any of the, we'd like to thank our sponsors. It wasn't anywhere. Now, yeah, I think the Métis Nation of Alberta does filter some money into the Gabriel DeMont Institute. And so I guess you can say in a roundabout way, these organizations probably do support it through that. But the point is, is they're not directly doing it. And if they're supposed to be the government and they're supposed to represent Métis, shouldn't they be directly involved in any Métis event, any Métis cultural experience, any Métis camp, any Métis anything going on in this province? Um, I mean, that's what I would expect. The Alberta government is. <laughs> I mean, you don't go to uh, a provincial park that, well, they're shutting those a lot of those down, but like you don't go to a provincial park that the Alberta government doesn't run. You don't, you don't go to events like everything is sanctioned by levels of government within Alberta. But with the Métis Nation of Alberta, it doesn't work that way. So, and I'm, I'm assuming it probably is the same in other provinces. I only speak of the MNA because that's where we live. But I'm assuming that it's it's the same way in other provinces. You may have some activity and more in the local level, in the community level, where this community might be really good at putting on events and they do a great job. But then other communities or locals aren't doing anything. Um, like here in Calgary, uh, the local is 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 trying to get things up and rolling, but they're they're facing an uphill battle because they don't get any real support financially or otherwise from from their government, their Métis Nation of Alberta. Um, so it's just it is really sad, and I and I I hope that like we've always said that people start to wake up and have these conversations, and start to have these conversations with these organizations and the people running them if they can, but. Does it fall on deaf ears? I think maybe often it does. 
Well, and like we said, the majority of Métis people are still outside of these organizations. And like we've talked about before, the reason locals have a hard time finding traction, like in Calgary, where there's such a huge number of Métis people, is because they're still only going to engage their own membership. Yes. Um, because everyone else isn't really Métis. Yeah. And so for the, the bulk of all people who are actually Métis outside of these organizations, that's that's the hard part. What can we do to create a catalyst to get these people together, to, to make a difference, yeah. to bring unification to Métis identity and identity politics? I don't know. We tried several things. None have stuck. But, you know, you know, we're not the smartest guys in the room either. So, right. you know, who knows? Well, and, and, and I mean, you know, we, we did it on shoestring budgets and stuff and donations. Um, but we still put on events. We still did things. Um, so it is possible. Uh, I just think, you know, a lot of times, like you said, you're engaging with a very select group of a small group of people to begin with. Um, and, and especially when it comes to, you know, if, if I'm going to be involved in something, but I know that I can never, ever, ever run for a position on the local, well, then why would I be involved in it? Why would I want to put my effort in and volunteer my time and, and do all these things? Because I can um, with, with locals. People can. But why would you do that if you know that you can never, ever, ever be the one sitting on the board any, at any point in time? Um, and so you're discriminated against because you don't have the right blood quantum and, and geographic blood lineage but they encourage you to come out to their events. Well, I don't, I don't want to go to a place where I'm going to be discriminated against or I can't ever be involved in organizing anything in, on the level of like actually being you know, president of the local or, or even on the board of, on, on the local. Well, I'll just move on to another group. I'll go be a, you know, a scout leader with my daughter and, and we'll go do that because at least there I can have a little bit more control and I can, I can be involved on a higher level if I want. I can, you know, you look at any amateur sports. I mean, you can be involved at whatever level you want and it's your children and, but you can't when it becomes to this. Right. Well, well then why would I waste my time? Well, and I think you hit an important nail on the head there. And that is why don't we see the involvement and the engagement is because what does it ever benefit the community? What does it benefit your kids? What is going to change for you, your family, or even your community by getting involved? Yeah. Because the organization isn't about harvesting rights. It's not about land. It's not about your culture. It's not about your language. It's not about your music. It's not about your food. So what is it about? Well, job employment, access to programs and services you probably yeah. don't need. Well, then why are you involved? Yeah. Well, it's no wonder they got no engagement because anything that actually matters to anybody's lives, they aren't there. They're, yeah. they're absent from that conversation and those events, yeah. you know? So what is there that you'd want to get involved in? Even if it was a club that you could join and you fit the criteria, what is that club going to give you? Exactly. And like exactly. we've joked about before, my Costco card gets me more than any Métis card that would in this whole country. Absolutely. And, and I know that people are going to hear that and probably go, oh, well, it's not about benefits. Yeah, but, but it kind of is. And I, I don't mean I want money or tax breaks. Like, I don't want to suddenly be part of the Indian Act. What I mean is, what, like, and I, I know this is what you mean, is where 
but what does that card mean to me as a Métis person? What does that card allow me access to on a Métis level? Does it allow me access to an online library of all Métis books that I can go and use that card to log in online and, and check out an, a virtual book and maybe download an Audible book or whatever? You know, like my library card allows me to do that, but my Métis card doesn't allow me to access any Métis authors, many, any Métis stuff like that. Um, documentaries, if there is any that have been made about Métis people. Does my Métis Nation of Alberta card give me free access to that information? No. So just little things like that where it's like the card doesn't give you access to anything cultural. It doesn't give you access to, to anything. So really, like you said, what does that card do? And, and it's not about Even like, as benefits when I, I buy my Costco card. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like we, we talked about before, like medical benefits, they, they don't exist. So what, like, what does this card get you that's, that's so valuable? And um, I just, I think it's hard to drive, like you said, drive enthusiasm to do things or be part of something that you don't really see, like, what, what value does this bring to my life? And I, I fail to see the plastic card where that membership in the Métis Nation of Alberta really gets you. Um, or anywhere where... You know, in, in Alberta, you've got a Métis card. You get to go to Métis Days. You know, you're going down like Fort Edmonton or or Fort Calgary to, to Métis Days because you have a, a Métis card. Or, you know, some pancake breakfast for Métis people that happens annually. Like, what what is it that being part of this organization is going to hand me and my children uh, some kind of ident- you know, identity connection or, or privilege or, yeah. or event or you know, a library or a book or a, you know, a CD, like what is it that yeah. would be impactful to my life uh, tomorrow morning that is, is meaningful? So why do I have a membership? What does is, what is this organization give me? Every club, every card I have is because there's a perk, a, a benefit to my life, either, yes. you know, physically, tangibly, emotionally, or financially for me to have it. I have a library card for a reason. Mm-hmm. access to what the library has yes what does my metis card get me yeah what what do you get access to and it the the sad answer is not much um you know like, like you talked about in the, the whole covid thing how many people have you know for this forty thousand people who have cards how many people got access to that seven and a half million dollars yeah well, and, and even you look at like they did a summer camp last year for Métis youth, but it was restricted only to members of the Métis Nation. And then if you're, and to children who already have their membership. And I think if you didn't have your kid's membership, you had to submit your like proof that they are your child and that they should have membership in, in the thing. But again, it's, it's very restricted. So you have 100,000 Métis in the province, but really a, a very restrictive amount of those can actually access this, a summer camp for youth. Now, if I was going to put on a summer camp for youth, I would invite Métis people. And I don't know if I'd be checking cards at the gate. Because if you say you're Métis and you self-identify as Métis and you want to join us on a summer camp, to spend a week doing 
Métis cultural things like learning how to finger weave and things like that, or, or just learning more about bushcraft or how to, how to paddle in the big canoes as a team. I don't know when, if these are the things you want to do and, but you don't have a membership card, you should be allowed to do them. And this, this exclusive discriminatory attitude needs to change. It doesn't work for the federal government. doesn't work for, for provincial governments, municipal governments. It, it certainly isn't working in the United States right now. Um, you cannot simply exclude people and expect people to be happy. You can't, and even the ones that are in aren't happy because they're still excluded because they're, they didn't, they, they said the wrong thing at the wrong time to the wrong person or whatever it is. And so it, these exclusive clubs eventually will have to die. They will have to go away because people are going to get so tired of being excluded. They're just, it's just, they're just, nobody's going to support them eventually. Um, and you know, if they whittle it down to the 3000 people that actually vote, they might stick around with these organizations. Then what kind of organization do you have when you represent, you know, less than 10,000 people in, in eventually out of a hundred thousand, you're not, you're not a representative organization at that point, you know? And, and again, it boils down to, for us, I think the priority is about the things that matter to your life when it talks about Métis identity and that's, you know, your language, your culture, yes. um, you know, being, feeling and participating in a wider community other than the singularity of my family. And yeah. what we're seeing is that the absolute last nails being pounded into that coffin before our eyes as these organizations are allowed to continue to drag out um, you know, in their government funding because yeah. things that matter most in the perpetuation of the Métis identity are the things that are never funded, they are never promoted, and they're never fought for. Yes. And the longer Métis people sit idly by and watch these things go, we're, we're going to end up, it's going to be our children and our grandchildren who have this Métis renaissance period <laughs> of trying to reclaim and, and build back everything that has, and we have basically let slide in our time. Yeah. You know, we have injured hardship and roadside and, you know, segregation against Métis people in this country for a very long time. Yes. However, in our own time, we have never been more funded, more mm -hmm. represented, and yet we are more culturally stagnant and dying off every day that passes than ever before. Yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've, I've never understood that because when you look at just the reality of life, if you're going to stick with this nationalistic, geographic, discriminatory um, plan of who is Métis and who's not, if you're going to focus solely on that, eventually you're going to eliminate yourself. Because as we move forward in, a, in society changes and populations grow and things change, people are naturally going to stop taking out memberships in these organizations. Because what is the point? So if I have a membership and I'm not using it for anything, it just sits in my wallet and I don't even half the time remember it's even there and I don't ever vote and I don't, I'm not involved. What is the likelihood that my child is going to be involved? 
even if we're a very strong Métis family and I teach her Machif and, and we wear sashes every day, if I'm not the one involved in the organization and I'm not volunteering, I'm not organi- you know, I'm not doing those things, the tra- likelihood of my child being involved in that organization is very small. And so as time moves on and families get smaller, because we're not having 19 kids anymore, we're having one to two. Um, and as people become less involved in these organizations, as we're seeing, you, you have 40,000 members, but 3,000 vote, that's a big, big gap. Then the descendants of those people will be less and less inclined to do the work to get membership, to be involved. To, like, who cares? I can go be Métis. And I don't have to have that organization tagging in my wallet. I don't have to pay any fee. I don't have to submit my genealogy, genealogy every three and a half years when they decide to change the requirements again or the map or whatever it is. That I don't care. And so th- that's the reality. And, I, and I've always understood that. And it seems like people like Will Gooden don't. They think that if there was, if there's, you know, 100,000 members of the Métis Nation now, there's always going to be at least 100,000 members. But that's just not reality. I mean, you go back in time and you look at some of the things like, um, you know, in the States, they have this thing where you can be a son or a daughter of the American Revolution. All it means is you have to be able to trace your family back and show that one of your ancestors fought in the war. Perfect. But those numbers are diminishing as generations go on. And why? Well, because people don't see the relevance to that civil war anymore. Because these organizations are kind of like, oh, they're nice to join. And you maybe go have them, you know, you get together once a year in your area or something, you know, like, but they're not a massive part of anybody's life. Um, There's even like a descendants of the Mayflower organization. Well, how many, how many people are actively pushing to get their membership in those organizations right now? Not a lot because it's, it's just not as critical, you know? And that's what you're going to see with these organ, this cartel is people are just naturally going to fall away because they've had smaller families. They're not as interested in these organizations, whether they're really strong culturally with their Métis roots or not, they're going to start to move away and you're going to have the most red river of red riverian Métis that is no longer part of these organizations. So I, I do think these are kind of like you said, the, the nails in the coffin, it's the death throes. And they're just, they're fighting with each other now. They're throwing everything on the fire because they need to keep the fire going. <laughs> and they got, they're, they're running out of things to, to burn. <laughs> and it just seems like now they're going to burn themselves. So, I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy days all the way around. I think it's good. I think hopefully, you know, that we can spark a conversation, that we can get people engaged. Yeah. You know, um, because it's a conversation I think that has to happen on a wider basis. What do we as Métis people want? What's our priorities? And we need to join together and build a unity outside of these organizations to really focus on what does matter. You know, Um, as much as I like government funding for programs and services to help people, the reality is if we lose our language, if we lose our culture, if we lose our history, no amount of money and government funding for programs, services, and jobs is going to replace that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but I think that's probably enough for today. I think we've gone on for well over an hour now. So uh, I don't know if you have any final thoughts or last hurrah that you want to get out, but uh, I think I'm all 
mates he talked out for the morning? Well, I hope people hit us up. I think if, if uh, there yeah. was anything in our conversation today that, that sparks interest, we're always open to, you know, hear from people, to talk to people, to find any kind of grounds that we can work together to preserve what should matter most. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think if, you know, again, if anybody has comments and, or they want us topics for us to discuss, um, you know, hit us up at metispodcast at gmail.com. We have gotten a couple of emails that, um, well, I know specifically one email and it was asking about a certain subject, but the subject was really hard because it would require us to actually do an investigative uh, research into the Métis Nation of Alberta and their de- business dealings and things like that. And the likelihood of that ever happening is zero. Um, the truth is you'll, we'll never get answers from the M&A. Trying to investigate the M&A or, and a, on a journalistic level it just isn't going to happen uh, because there's no transparency or accountability. So unfortunately um, you can send us those kinds of emails, but unfortunately when it comes to the organizations, we can't organ in- investigate, you know, the Métis housing that Métis Nation of Alberta does because we're not even members. We're not allowed in and they're, they don't even let their members know about that stuff. So it's, it's, it's nearly impossible. Um, well, just remember on that on that front, a quick note is that there are society formed under the Societies Act, mm-hmm. whose best information we could get is a copy of their bylaws. Anything behind that falls behind that firewall, and you yeah. have to be a lawyer to get to get that legal access to that information. Yeah, and it has to be part of a lawsuit or part legal action, or you know, police investigation or something along that lines. Um, but I don't want to discourage people from sending stuff like that because maybe we can at least talk about it on the periphery. Um, and, or if people are willing to come on and talk about their viewpoint of view, we'd be more than happy to, to look at those as well. So just to encourage you always to, to check us out or on Facebook, social media, and to send us your comments and questions on metispodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I think for me, I'm good. And so I guess uh, until the next time we decide to do this, the jig is up.